everyone, and welcome to the Master of Educational Technology at UBC's podcast for our Anti-Racism in the EdTechnosphere speaker series. My name is Dr. Carrie Ewart, and I am a lecturer for the Master of Educational Technology program, what we call MET at UBC, and one of the designers and coordinators for the Anti-Racism in the EdTechnosphere speaker series. And I am Dr. Samia Khan, director of the MET program, professor and co-coordinator with Dr. Carrie Ewart of this seminar series. For our listeners, one of the ways we begin meetings in Canada is to acknowledge the Indigenous people on whose taken land we benefit from. This is part of a broader national truth and reconciliation effort in Canada and here at UBC. I am speaking on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam peoples. Our podcasting booth, MET offices, and servers are located on this territory. A more expansive statement on our commitment to Canada's 94 calls to action can be found on our MET website as the statement on commemorating Canada's National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. These calls to action invite us to commit to change. MET has launched a series of podcasts that will explore the role of education and technology in social justice and anti-racism as part of this call. Samia, what is MET? The Master of Educational Technology, or MET program, educates professionals on the use and the impact of digital learning technologies. This fully online graduate program provides a unique opportunity for our students to engage in topics such as the role of ed tech in racism and anti-racism. Since the degree program was launched in 2002, close to 2,000 individuals have enrolled in the UBC MET program, with more than 450 students enrolled currently. MET dedicates itself to supporting its learners, stakeholders, and the public to make a positive change in communities. Carrie, what is the speaker series about, and what are we talking about in this podcast? The purpose of the speaker series is to acknowledge the commitment that every individual has to inclusivity and to addressing systemic racism. With a focus on anti-Indigenous, anti-Black, and anti-People of Color racism, this series seeks to identify the responsibility educators and leaders have to facilitating and supporting anti-racist approaches and strategies within their practice to enhance and transform learning environments and learning cultures. With a specific directive, being digital technologies, presenters and guests will discuss racism and tools to support equity, diversity, and inclusivity and the changing dynamics of the digital age. As a result, at MET, we are committed to a follow-up to each presentation of the speaker series with a call to action challenge. We invite listeners to make one change this month, no matter how small, and to share it with us as a next step to this podcast to eradicate racism through community building, education, and through the use of educational technologies. This call to action provides you the opportunity as listeners of this podcast to build on the anti-racist content from this podcast and make steps towards change. For example, you might integrate what you've heard and thought about from this podcast with a lesson plan that will bring awareness to the issues of racism for students, colleagues, and friends. We will provide you with more details about this call for proposals at the end of this podcast. The topic for this podcast is pervasive racism and the 2S LGBTQIA community. We have with us Mira Deber, a queer cis woman with cultural roots in India and currently living as an uninvited settler in Vancouver, Canada. Mira is an associate faculty at the City University of Seattle, Master of Counseling Program, 
where Mira teaches social justice approaches to mental health by centering the voices of IBPOC and queer artists, activists, and scholars through decolonized and intersectional constructionist pedagogies. Mira also has a clinical supervision practice that focuses on queer, BIPOC, anti-racist support structures. Welcome, Mira Daber. It is so great to have you with us today. Hi, it's fantastic to be here too. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this podcast. Thank you. We are also honored to welcome our second guest to the show, Alex DeForge. Alex is a non-binary queer settler of Filipinx and white ancestry, who is the coordinator of social impact and provincial services with British Columbia's Community, which is a nonprofit organization that supports, guides, and helps queer, trans, and two-spirit folk looking for a sense of community. We are so pleased to welcome you to today's episode, Alex. Hi, thanks for having me, and it's lovely to meet you all. Thank you. Thanks, Mira and Alex. So we'll kick off by um, sharing several statistics that we've heard about on our 2SLGBTIA plus community. For example, uh, one statistics from Statistics Canada states that Canada is home to approximately 1 million people who are LGBTQ2 plus, accounting for 4% of the total population aged 15 and older, and that was in 2018. Another stat um, from Stonewall in the United Kingdom in 2018 reveals that 51% of black, Asian, and minority ethnic LGBT people reported having experienced racism in the LGBT community. This number rises to 61% for black LGBT people. I'd like to ask you both, how should we view statistics like this? Hi, Samia. Thank you for sharing those stats. And if it's okay, I'd also like to critique a little bit the challenges of research in uh, queer and IBPOC communities, because um, there's a lot of questions about the accuracy about the research and stats with this population. So, for example, in some of the research that I've been doing, trying to discern the mental health, the, men- the, the stats on the mental health effects in our communities, as well as how erasure and invisibility and invisibilities experienced by students and faculty, I found it was very difficult to fully discern and draw clear conclusions. For example, what are these numbers based on? Are they based on self-identity? Who created the parameters? Were participants asked to check boxes or were there text boxes where they could openly share their preferred use of language? Um, How is trans defined? Is it defined based on social, legal, or medical transition? And a lot of research tends to often capture either queer people, trans people, or IBPOC folks. Rarely can numbers accurately reflect this community together as a group. And I think there also needs to be a lot more focus on the resiliency and strategies of coping and not just problematizing and stigmatizing our communities. Oh, and lastly, also, stats are generally likely to reflect people who are out and comfortable to share and disclose information. And often they're concentrated in urban areas. These are all great questions and pertinent points that you made, Mira, and something which our listener audience, listening audience will be cognizant of the next time they encounter statistics such as these. Now, I would love for you to take a moment to briefly introduce yourself and say a little bit about the work that you do in anti-racism and in the queer BIPOC community. Yes, I would love to do that. Thank you. Thank you, Sami, and thank you, Carrie. 
Um, and did I tell you this is the first time I've ever been on a podcast? So I'm actually quite excited about this experience as well. <laughs> yeah, so my work draws on over 20 years of frontline and program planning social work practice in Toronto and in clinical healthcare briefly before I moved into, well, into Vancouver, but also into academia, researching and teaching social justice-based counseling practices. I'm really leaning into centering cultural and feminist theorists and queer color and two-spirit scholarship to better inform how queer IBPOC identities are understood in the mental health field and how they're approached in counseling. I've really learned and found that the teachings in counseling, psychology, and social work are still behind in many respects. And the critical discussions, the much-needed critical discussions, are taking place in other disciplines like queer studies, gender studies, native studies, two-spirit studies. In my teaching and clinical supervision, I focus on having the uncomfortable conversations. I don't know, they're not uncomfortable to me, but they're uncomfortable initially. But the conversations about identities, power, privilege, I teach counselors how to engage in these conversations with your clients. I really believe that engaging in relational and intersectional practice creates an important theoretical paradigm to draw on, which I believe is critically imperative in mental health. We all know too well how deeply our communities have been hurt by mental health professionals and are really seeking to disrupt those colonial white supremacist foundations. You know, I remember one student I was teaching last year in a course on sexuality, and he said he never realized there was a queer student saying he never realized there was so much to learn and talk about related to queerness because he was so accustomed to one short paragraph in a textbook or a brief summary naming in, a, in coursework. I think that language and terminology is especially important and it's also complicated. All of this is complicated and it's constantly shifting. So I also think, especially in our communities, finding language that is inclusive of all of our subjectivities, but also needs to be easily understood by those positioned as insiders and outsiders. That's definitely not a small task. But you know, I love and I embrace this. But I also want to move beyond the initialisms because I find a lot of trainings in professional development tends to focus on that LGBT 101 kind of thing. And I want to move beyond those initialisms to really think about what it means to live in these identity positions. How can we learn from first-hand experiences? How can we bring it into our work and into our classrooms and into our practice? Because you use the language of pervasive racism, this also takes place on many levels and is complicated. It's within our community, it's within the queer community, it's within racialized communities, it's not just a harm that takes place from the outside. So I really like to get away from, um, you know, the pervasive and harmful effects of the binaries, the us and them, the people of color versus white, the gay versus straight, and really look at all of this together as this mess and just figure out how we work through it together. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Mira, for identifying the lens to which you'll be speaking from today. And we will delve further and deeper into this over the next hour or so and unpack some of the points that you made. Yes, Mira, you've talked a lot about some very difficult and challenging conversations. These are very relevant to those in higher education and K through 12 education. And as mentioned, we'll delve into a little bit of that uh, further on. Alex, I'd love to ask you the same question. Could you please introduce yourself and tell our audience a little bit about the work that you do in the area of anti-racism and the 2S LGBTQIA plus community, and specifically about Two-Spirit within that acronym? Yeah, 
Thank you for the great question, Samia. Um, I work with community as their social impact and provincial services coordinator, which is a really long title for saying that I do research, grant writing, partnership building, um, all to support and fill gaps of communities programming. Um, Mayor pointed out the great importance of talking about positionality. So I, I do think it is important. I know you already introduced me as such. Um, I identify as queer, trans, non-binary, and Filipinx, but I am not indigenous. Um, so this puts me in the place of having privilege as a settler on stolen land um, and as somebody that is trying to do their best as an ally um, when it comes to making sure that two-spirit communities have access to resources, programs, um, and also some autonomy in our programming. Something that really connects to a lot of what Mira was saying is really in this past decade, community has been changing structures um, and practices to better reflect the fact that queerness cannot be pulled apart from other people's identities, such as cultural identities and racial identities. What this means is that we view anti-racism as work that is integral to queer liberation and queer celebration. And indeed, the places that community has fallen short as a queer resource center has been around supporting racialized and indigenous queer folks. Um, this is something that we've really come to understand about our organization and something that we really see when we talk to people, when we run studies. Um, and I think speaking very much to Mira's point about the importance of creating those like braver spaces, finding those places where conversations are sometimes uncomfortable, this has been a place for us to grow. So we've really realized that community um, is not doing enough by just putting Two-Spirit in our name, nor is it enough to say that our programming invites Two-Spirit people to just come by. Um, we actually have to build programming designed and led by Two-Spirit folks. So this is totally essential to recognizing that sexual and gender identities of indigenous peoples um, that have existed on this land long before colonizers and long before we started using words like queer and trans is something that is here and making sure that those terms like queer and trans don't become another vehicle for erasing indigenous identities. This is very important to anti-racism work in Canada, um, but probably also important to anti-racism work anywhere, making sure that you're not doing work on behalf of liberation for some group that erases other identities. This is really important work that you're doing, Alex, on anti-racism. Can you tell us a little bit more about the meaning of 2S for our listeners and specifically what this means to anti-racism understanding as you've already touched on these points? Totally. So 2S is uh, the acronym that we use for Two-Spirit. And uh, something interesting about the term Two-Spirit, it's only really come around in like the last couple decades. Um, I think it was being used at least since the 70s. Um, but it's the term that's been taken up by our Indigenous community in Canada. Um, and the original term is talking about two-spirit as being something uh, of having both male and female spirits and energies in oneself. Um, and it's been used as a broad term because, of course, Indigenous identity is not a monolith. It's not the same across Canada um, or anywhere, really. Um, and so there's a lot of different Indigenous ways of having sexual and gender identities. Two-spirit is a way for those cultures um, to be able to talk about having something that's 
a bit different than just queerness and transness as we see in the colonial constructs that we've sort of brought to the table um, in like the last century. Uh, so Two-Spirit is the term that we use at Community, uh, the organization that I work, to talk about Two-Spirit culture as something being here and being real and being alive. Um, and also, it's importantly different than just being queer because lots of people who are Two-Spirit don't feel like they fit into the colonial box of being queer or being trans. They feel like they fit into the boxes that their culture and their languages describe. So that allows it as like a catch-all term and something that recognizes that there's a lot more to sexual and gender identity than what we as settlers think of. Thank you so much, Alex. That was helpful to me and I'm sure listeners in understanding to us in a deeper context. Now, Mira, how do you express yourself across different cultural aspects and spaces? Right. Thanks, Carrie. Well, you know, you may have already noted from Alex's comments in mind that, that we're using a, some slightly different language and terminology. Alex is prioritizing Indigenous lens while I'm considering queer in a slightly different multi-level of multi-story context. And, you know, if we have the time, Alex and I could have a whole other uh, conversation about that. But I think that the pieces of language are so complex and so important. You know, I'm often asking, you know, tell me what you mean when you use that word. So there are some differences in how I use the word queer. And Alex and I can just do this work alongside each other um, in a way that's not necessarily taking away from each other's understanding of the use of the word. But getting back to your question, Carrie. So, you know, I think about expression in cultural spaces as being influenced by context, by safety, by visibility. I think a lot about my experiences of liminality in many of the cultural spaces I occupy. For me, that liminality means um, kind of sitting in, a, in, a, in an in-between space or a space where not all parts of me are visible or recognized. But what I've learned is the resiliency that this brings. And what I mean by that is sometimes being in a very queer space or being in a very brown cultural space and what it means to walk in those worlds often as separate places, not as not in, in not where they come together. So I used to feel really challenged by that, but now I've really learned and welcomed the resiliency that this has brought to me and I welcome it. I think that um, for a lot of us, you know, we haven't been fully represented. We don't have mentors, we don't have peers, we don't have family role models. And I love that we've had to learn our ethics, our values and our rules of engagement as we go. And I much prefer that to having to fit myself into predetermined boxes. I really think about how educators and students can integrate their own cultural knowledge into their education. This is missing from how a lot of counseling theories and practices taught. And most practitioners figure this out after working in the field for some time. I find that focusing too heavily on frameworks, on models, on competencies gets us away from what we know and how we know to live, which is the piece around cultural knowledge that I'm referring to. One of the most important questions that drew me to my, uh, to my PhD research and research questions was hearing counseling students and practicum students often say to me, I don't know what's different as a queer practitioner working with my own queer community. I haven't learned what that means. Or practitioners repeatedly telling me, I don't share my queer identity, even with queer clients, because it is considered crossing a professional boundary and it's considered a form of self-disclosure. I think that's very harmful. And I think that really speaks to some of these colonial foundations of our discipline. 
I think there's so much value and wisdom in honoring the cultural knowledge that has been erased in my field. I think a lot about how educators must be feeling silenced by professionalism and objectivity. And I wonder how many educators are able to question the colonial foundations that their professions have been built on and seek to disrupt it. So what suggestions then do you have as a person of color who identifies as queer for educators and students who are trying to navigate their own cultural knowledge and identify who might not have the role models or those that they can turn to for guidance and advice? That's a great question. You know, I really value the use of educational technology and some resources that I would like to share and make suggestions as a first step are those that can help QT BIPOC folks feel supported. The first is a site created by the Human Rights Campaign that focuses on QT BIPOC. And I just learned the the term QT BIPOC, you know, in my decades, like these terms have not been around. And I just love the evolution of this term. So there's um, a human rights campaign that focuses on QT BIPOC mental health and well-being. They've created an excellent video and have many resources and support numbers for QT BIPOC folks. In schools, educators might have students view this video available on HRC's site in a flipped classroom approach using a tool like Edpuzzle and pose critical questions to get all students thinking about the messages presented and examining these messages from equity, diversity, inclusion, decolonization, and anti-racism frameworks. The acronym for that is E-D-I-D-A. And um, the website for that is hrc.org slash resources slash QTBIPOC, mental health and well-being. Um, The next resource is the iDream library that creates diverse childhood literature. So QT BIPOC children see themselves represented in the books that they read and the literature in which their educators, parents, and community engage. And I have to tell you, when I looked at this site, www.idreamlibrary.com, I'm so emotional. I would have loved to have seen books like these when I was growing up. I can't imagine what a difference it would make for families and educators today. And finally, as I mentioned, I'm someone who initiates and supports critical and uncomfortable conversations in my field of therapy. These are the same conversations that people need to be having in classrooms and staff rooms. Indeed, being a queer or trans teacher is difficult, but to be a a racialized queer trans educator is even more challenging. Research is telling us that teachers of color are being pushed out of the profession at alarmingly high rates. Unfortunately, there are a plethora of reasons that cause many teachers who are Black, Indigenous, or people of color to leave the teaching profession, ranging from having to endure microaggressions to being expected to be more disciplinarians than teachers. Add these challenges of being a BIPOC teacher to the challenges that come with being queer or trans, and it comes as no surprise that there's a scarcity of racialized queer and trans teachers in the profession. Instead of centering the voices and experiences of queer and trans BIPOC teachers who bring so many assets to schools and classrooms, school communities often overlook teachers with these intersecting, marginalized, and important identities, leaving us feeling unsupported. We, as educators, we have critical questions and we're not being supported. We're not being given the space to do the work in a way that privileges our own knowledges. As in my role in industry, my suggestions are threefold. Actually, I think they're fourfold. I added one more. Um, Read and inform yourself and inform your students. Use inclusive language, such as calling the students folks or friends instead of boys or girls, saying parent instead of mom and dad. 
and knowing and asking people for their pronouns so that you can address them as they identify and that they can feel more valued. Thirdly, become an advocate. It can be incredibly lonely identifying as a QT BIPOC. These intersecting identities are marginalizing and having advocates to help push back on racist, homophobic, transphobic slurs, policies, and practices is a step in the right direction. And finally, think relationally and ask questions like, how is this going for you? How are you experiencing this classroom? How are you experiencing my my teaching and what I'm providing? What is allowing you to be heard? Wow, Mira, thank you so much for these incredible resources and amazing ideas. And for our listening audience, all of these resources that were shared by Mira right now and in the future through um, Mira and Alex's responses to our questions, they will be showing as uh, links and everything to this podcast as an attachment for your view and your use as we move on. Alex, what has been a yes or finally moment for you when considering the impact the work you have done has had on anti-racism in within the communities and outside the communities that you serve? Thanks for the question. I'm actually going to talk about two yes moments because something that Mira said also uh, clicked in my head as something that we've realized at our organization, which is that in order to do anti-racism work and also queer liberation work, um, we actually have to come together as staff and volunteers, also like clients in a community where we can arrive at our space, um, whether that's like our actual office, but across BC as our whole selves and with our whole selves, um, which means that with all pieces of our identity, including our cultural identities, our racial identities, um, I mean, as Mira said, identity is completely intersectional. And so the ways in which we experience privileges and also oppression um, is also based on how our identities intersect in those spaces. So that is one big yes moment we've actually had recently um, is really just understanding that our staff in order to do the work to its fullest need to be able to show up at the workplace as themselves, not as part of themselves, not as the ideal of themselves, as people that have complex identities. Um, our second big yes moment really has to do with our work with Two-Spirit and Indigiqueer people. Um, we really realized recently that we actually just need to dive in. Um, I want to say a big credit goes to my executive director, Anoop Gill, who really took the initiative in putting money where our mouth is and actually hiring an Indigenous outreach coordinator, um, building rules around that, building out like, community panels, um, making sure that we have non-colonial systems of support for those people um, and actually starting to build relationships and trust with indigenous communities. I, I really think that for a long time, and I, th I think a lot of educators can, can relate to this experience, at least with our organization, we are stuck on the idea that we needed to do more and learn more and that we needed to get it exactly right, especially get it right the first time. And I think that um, there was a lot of work that we need to do and there is a lot of work that we still need to do to make community a safer place for indigenous folks. But we were really letting perfect be the enemy of the good, um, which is to say that in our efforts to try and get things exactly right, we were finding ourselves at like a total standstill. We weren't doing the work at all. We were just talking about it and talking about it and, and trying to make it perfect. So 
it means that as we build intentional work around two-spirit and indigenous queer communities and identities, um, we really have to be accountable to mistakes and harms we create even accidentally. So the fear of mistakes is not an excuse for paralysis. And you have to be willing to make mistakes. You have to kind of be brave and move forward and do the best you absolutely can, but not let that be an excuse for inaction. Well said, Alex. Now, can you tell us from this or these, I suppose, yes moments of which you spoke and the work that you're doing to support anti-racism and anti-Indigenous racism in the 2SLGBTQIA plus community, what might the support look like from an educational technology lens? Thanks for asking that. Um, I think this is such a valuable question, especially as so many classrooms are now these like bimodal classrooms where some things are in-person, some things are online. Um, we have a lot of great educational technologies that can be used to support learning, knowing, and doing an Indigenous education, and to also challenge pervasive racism in the 2S LGBTQIA community. One of these resources was in fact created by MET students, Angela Reynolds, Chris Rugo, and Annika Nussbaum, and is a digital learning resource that was designed for educators to use with their students. It approaches SOGI, or Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity, and BIPOC, Black Indigenous People of Color, from an anti-racist lens. The contents of these resources are intended to inform, elicit critical conversations, support teachers and students, and shatter stereotypes and racism. As diversity and social justice have become more important in education, educators are beginning to realize that their lessons, both real and virtual, need to be inclusive. Uh, the Association for Learning Technologies has created a video for educators on developing an anti-racism toolkit. And this includes 2S LGBTQIA plus considerations. I'll share this link. You'll see it in the resources that are put up with this podcast. This encourages educators to be cognizant about pervasive racism and the 2S LGBTQIA plus community, and to ensure that all voices are heard, honored, included, and represented within their materials, education technology choices, and within their interactive activities. I also encourage you to check out our organization website, community.ca. Uh, it has a lot of supporting links, uh, connections, for taking action, um, and we closely work with school boards in BC to open the conversation uh, and ensure that the teaching that is happening is inclusive, equitable, diverse, decolonized, and anti-racist. And we have amazing uh, youth specialists that are also happy to talk to teachers and help them build lessons out. A few more educational technologies, one that I would highly recommend, which I also just went through a bunch of these myself, um, is from Nahani Creative. Um, I would especially recommend this to people in the Lower Mainland because Michelle Nahani, the creator of the material, is from a local Indigenous community. Um, but the learnings are relevant for all Canadians and I would say anyone who is doing work with Indigenous peoples. It is a series of on-demand mini-courses that introduce the learner to ideas such as decolonizing practices that you can take into your own work as a settler, um, things like etiquette for allies uh, and cultural protocols. There's like cultural empathy that's taught, cultural safety, and all these mini courses are online and it only takes about an hour. Uh, so it's like a, a really easy commitment. You can just sort of do it like before dinner. You can do it with like your family. Um, I found it really approachable and it actually looked to me that even though it was intended for adults, it, I would say that 
anyone could do it at any age, honestly. <laughs> it was also a good way of making sure that like allyship is an ongoing practice. So we want to make sure that when we're doing these things and the way that even teachers teach these things to their students, it's that it's like an, an ongoing thing that does not end. Um, Nahani Creative has all of these courses that range between, I think like $25 and $40. Um, and it's relatively cheap. I think it's also important that we show that uh, guidance on allyship is worth paying for. Um, the other resource I'd recommend, which is like a really easy and free online resource, um, is nativeland.ca. That's native-land.ca. And it's a great way of finding out whose land you're on. Um, even if you think you know whose land you are on, uh, this website is actually an interactive map. So it'll give you links to those nations' websites and tell you more about the people, the languages, the cultures, the histories. And uh, you don't actually have to be particularly technologically savvy to engage with the site. It's sort of like a Google map. Um, so if you can use a Google map, you can use this resource. And I, I think this is actually a really important thing to do, even though it's easy, because I think that it's easy for people like me, like settlers like me, to sometimes do land acknowledgements and talk about indigenous people and colonialism as if it's something past and something that's over. And taking a regular look at what local nations are doing, what their governments are advocating for, what the people are practicing, what they're speaking. It's a great way of keeping in mind that these people and their cultures are alive and well and that colonialism is ongoing. Lastly, an example for using education technology in the classroom to support learning on this topic is that you might consider having students connect with one of the Two-Spirit groups of Canada and create an interactive infographic on reclaiming voices in light of the pervasive racism that exists. So it is totally essential to work with Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples to investigate historical trauma that led to the dissolution of the role and the displacement of Two-Spirit people from within their communities and the connection between the displacement of Two-Spirit people from their heritage who routinely experience stigma, racism, and discrimination in both First Nations and mainstream society. Using education technology tools, students will include their own call to actions and next steps to debunking anti-racism and the 2S LGBTQIA community. Thanks so much, Alex. These are really amazing ideas and a great inclusion of educational technology to combat racism and promote anti-racism. I wanted to ask at this point, Mira, how do you view educational technologies and what recommendations do you have for our listeners? Well, you know, Samia, COVID forced us to embrace educational technologies, even though they're not something that is new at all. I have been learning about them since I first started teaching at Ryerson over 10 years ago. Currently, I'm teaching in a hybrid. It's called a hybrid or a mixed mode program, and it's become one of my favorite ways to teach. In a mixed mode or hybrid program, as you know, there's um, the asynchronous and synchronous pieces. Every week, there are discussion board questions based on course material, and the students engage in an online discussion. And then we've got some full days where we're actually in person together. My goal is to replicate as much as possible the energy, the discussion, the growth, and discomfort that can take place in the classroom with the real-time opportunities that ed technologies can provide. 
So something I do, for example, is I'll post weekly videos speaking to the students about what I've seen them discussing. I'll be posting some questions. I'll be responding to some of their questions. I will look to the week ahead and I'll share what is important for them to focus on. Students repeatedly tell me that they really love and appreciate this connection. I also post regular video conversations with colleagues. I assign them as readings. And so this is where a colleague, colleague and I were discussing a particular issue or a focus of practice. And again, the students tell me the visual is so much more impactful than constant readings and texts and journals. And in this way, I'm also attaching uh, practice and theory because we're talking about the theories, but how we're doing it in our work, my colleagues and I. Further, instead of having the students always post written discussion board posts, I'm encouraging them to post videos discussing the week's materials with their classmates. They love this. So this also meets their various teaching and learning styles. You know, I trust that they want to learn. And my role is to provide them with the best experience possible. I've also noticed that one challenge of ed technologies is that they often need to be purchased and the department does not always have the funding. In addition to the resources I have recommended, I would like to add some more. One is learningforjustice.org, which is a resource that highlights student-led actions, digging deeper into social justice standards, classroom resources, including lesson plans, critical challenges for educators to get students thinking and talking about pervasive racism and the 2S LGBTQIA plus community, teacher strategies and film kits. As mentioned, I use a lot of videos in my classes and podcasts, and these are great ways about conversations and change. Another good site is UNICEF, which has great educational technologies and educator projects that support anti-racism teaching while examining the specific nuances within our communities. And lastly, integrating virtual reality, augmented reality, and gamification into the student's learning experience when tackling anti-racism. Again, in the two S LGBTQIA plus communities. Having students analyze and investigate white dominant colonial representation and the perpetuating marginalization and oppression within video games. Students might design a more inclusive queer, trans, non-binary, two-spirit game that represents their identities while also combating racism and including the missing voices and identities. There are many ways to utilize educational technologies to fight the fight any change. Thank you so much, Mira, for sharing these resources with us. To continue, do you have any advice for educators on how they might effectively implement anti-racist discourse within their classrooms and how this might be achieved through and with educational technology? Yeah, I sure do, Samia. Thank you. You know, educators have to first be aware of what conversation they're creating space for and what they're shying away from. And for example, you know, I'm really driven by Bell Hooks' work in Engaged Pedagogy, which discusses the importance of educators modeling the kind of discussion they welcome from students, which would include sharing their own experiences, challenges, and learnings. We can't just ask students to share, we have to model how the sharing can be. Queer BIPOC educators are already more likely to do this because we, they, will recognize how they were challenged in their own education. There is still a general invisibility and erasure of queerness and especially queer racialized subjectivities in academia and in our field. The discourse of queerness and queer therapists is still heavily focused on self-disclosure and boundaries, even by queer scholars. 
So I encourage discomfort. I encourage thinking and learning about the feelings that come with it and what it signals. I encourage and support questions and students do not have to agree with me. My teachings are from my particular view of social justice, relational intersectionality and queer ethics. But I want them to develop and conceptualize their own practice framework. This is especially important for counselors and training that I see. I also use podcasts and videos that come from a variety of lived experiences and backgrounds. I constantly remind students that these learnings are meant to challenge the inherent whiteness in our field in general and to build their own frameworks for how they wish to practice. So what I mean is I'm not teaching Indigenous values so that you know how to use them with Indigenous clients or Indigenous students, but to help teach and understand the shortcomings of the field in general and to better understand the practices that need to be embraced in all counseling practices, approaches and with clients. I also recognize for some students in my classroom, they're learning these discourses for the first time, while others have already recognized their gaps and are hungry for the teachings that I bring. Others are not really sure it's for them, and they must recognize and respect all of these positions. You know, I think that in academia, we may, we may be told often what to include in curricula. We may be given predetermined modules to shape our course content. But if you're told to include anti-oppressive practice, anti-racism, or LGBTQ identities, for example, how is an educator to do that? Who is going to mentor and support an educator to reach the pedagogical levels they aspire to? These are really important questions and, and they prompt reflection. Alex, as I turn to you, I think about good intentions and beliefs, uh, anti-racist beliefs are just the beginning. But there is a huge gap between what we intend and what we believe and what we actually do. What are your suggestions to educators to help empower them to have some of these conversations with their students to ensure the nuance and depth of anti-racist dialogue, anti-2S LGBTQ plus discourse is given what it deserves within classroom environments in order to foster anti-racist conversations and perhaps elicit change? Great. Yeah. I mean, I want to really build on the things that Mira has said, um, because I think that what I believe and what community practices, um, community as organization, what we practice, uh, really falls into line with the, the points that Mira brought up. Um, first, I want to make sure that we're empowering educators to have difficult conversations in the safest way possible. And I think that this means that we need to recognize that there is a fine and fuzzy line between discomfort, which is that place of learning, and a lack of safety. Um, I know that this has become like a, a real issue among educators because of all the discourse that's popped up around trigger warnings. Um, I know that oftentimes the idea of trigger warnings is used both in a positive way and in a negative way. Um, and I do actually want to encourage people to use trigger warnings. I think it's totally possible to identify uh, areas that might be extremely uncomfortable and even emotionally triggering for students and make sure that you add those trigger warnings so that people can judge for themselves where the line is between discomfort and triggered trauma. Um, it's gonna to be totally impossible to make sure that all students feel safe at all times. And what you want in a classroom is a good balance of safe spaces and brave spaces. And what that means is brave spaces are where you have those difficult conversations. Safe spaces are maybe places in which you like sometimes shy away from some of those things or in which 
you know, students don't have to worry about uh, their own emotional safety or places where students know that they can escape if they are feeling particularly triggered. Um, so that means that you can warn your students about triggering conversations, possibly triggering conversations, and invite them to choose for themselves. I think Mira made the point of trusting that students want to learn, and I think that this is part of that trust, trusting that students know what their own boundaries are, and getting them to actually like consider and look inside themselves where and why they might feel discomfort, and where and why that might be different than feeling not safe. Uh, as an educator, you need to get your students to think critically about white fragility um, and settler fragility. I think that there is a lot of settler paralysis when it comes to truth and reconciliation. It's really hard to know where to start. And it's also sometimes difficult to take criticism. And so I think that learning what white fragility is and what it looks like um, and what it sounds like and knowing what microaggressions sound like is a really great way of doing this thing that Mira was talking about of modeling for students what a good conversation, what a good discussion looks like. Um, it helps you contrast that with what it sounds like to be defensive, what it sounds like to have white fragility, what it sounds like to bring forth like microaggressions in a classroom. Uh, and the other important part of that is being vulnerable and willing to and being ready to catch yourself when you make your own mistakes as an educator because that is inevitably going to happen and that's okay the important thing to do is recognize when you've made a mistake and what you do afterward which is make an apology correct yourself give it another try right it's it's just like anything else where it's all about practicing the right actions um, it becomes easier as you go along I would ask your students who have lived experience for their input and prioritize their voices in a conversation. And that can be in person or in virtual classrooms. It could look like prioritizing them on a speaker's list. It could be giving them access to some of the materials. It could be asking them if they want to share something before discussion starts. And it can be asking how they feel about how the discussion is going. I would also recommend using interactive online tools that create a shared language. Um, Mira actually brought up that she and I are using uh, different, a different way of talking about queerness. And I think that uh, this is something that happens all the time when we have these difficult conversations. Um, interactive tools online can like make sure that people are using the same terms in the same ways. It does, it's not necessary to having good conversations. Obviously, we're having a good conversation now. It's okay to have slightly different definitions, but making sure that people understand each other is what is essential to this. Um, and then make sure that you draw on your colleagues' expertise and from local organizations. Mira made the point that oftentimes in things like academia, in the classroom, in our own education institutions, we don't have the representation that would make these conversations a little bit easier. And so if you don't have that representation, you can actually draw on like your colleagues, you can draw from outside of your institution and really bring in people like guest speakers, collaborators, um, facilitators for these conversations. 
I know that community and other grassroots organizations across BC and across Canada um, keeps a living document of individuals and organizations who can assess, present on, facilitate all sorts of conversations um, on all sorts of topics, of like topics about justice and oppression and equity and inclusion. And especially with this like increased new ability for people to zoom in, to classrooms or to like log on to classrooms, it's way easier than ever to bring people into your class. You don't actually have to get them physically there. And this is a perfect example. This podcast is actually being recorded across countries, across an ocean. There we go, <laughs> across an ocean. So um, yeah, it's easier than ever to get collaborators. And then lastly, I wanna say this again, cause it's worth repeating and it's something that's really stuck in my mind since I first heard it. Remember that perfection is the enemy of the good. And that's again to say like, be brave and have imperfect conversations on these topics and be ready to take responsibility for inevitable missteps. Alex, I think you did a great job at identifying that and the idea of being perfectly imperfect and being able to uh, have those mistakes, make those mistakes and rectify those and that be part of that learning process. So thank you so much. Now, to both of you, how might an educator, student, leader or an individual handle um, the casual racism and the concept of unlearning racism to ensure equity, diversity, inclusion, and anti-racism in their classroom. What strategies might be used and how can we more empower our students? Yeah, thanks, Carrie. I have a couple of thoughts. You know, first of all, let's expect it and let's be comfortable with it and let's understand where it's coming from. I think we have to ask more questions. We have to understand where a particular perspective is coming from because it will be shaped by the cultural context of that person. I think that language can be very limiting and sometimes convey harm by virtue of the way something's expressed. So often when someone says something, I'm saying, tell me more about what you mean is this what you mean? This is what it sounds like. I think this is how it came came across. And I want to engage in conversation to learn more. I want to be able to model the conversation that I want them to be able to have in their own practice settings or for educators to have in their own classrooms. I also like to teach concepts like anti-racism from different perspectives to show that any one term is always complex, layered, and nuanced. I'd like students to feel empowered to know that they're that they're always included in my teaching. They're not silenced. Their point of view is important and not to feel isolated. I believe that everyone who has the courage to come forward with a question, someone else is nodding their head silently because they are grappling with the same concern. Comes back to what Alex was talking about when Alex was naming the bravery. It's about that bravery. You have the bravery to say something, to name something. So let me honor what you took a chance to say and let me work with you around what you were meaning in that comment. We have to know more before we can assume the intention of a comment. This is really particularly relevant, Mira, in our online environments and in our face-to-face connections that we have with people. Finally, to end, what should we ask you that we didn't? This Mm. is the toughest question, (laughs) surprisingly. (laughs) Well, you know, I'll tell you what I'm really excited by right now is in reading all of these queer of color scholars, they're called queer of color critiques, in reading two-spirit critiques, one piece that's become glaringly clear is how often 
the roots of a lot of the scholarship is traced back to Black feminist thought. I think that's really important. I want to share that first. And what my research and readings are helping me to really think about is that expansiveness of queerness, the, the, the spaciousness, that it's not just about sex, it's not just about gender, it's so much more than that. It's about community, it's about how we live our lives, it's about how the choices that we make, it's about how we about activism is so much more than that. And that's why initially I was saying, you know, that initialism becomes very limiting because people spend so much time learning what the letters stand for. That's very important. But what does it mean to live? That's what I'm really interested in. That's what I really want educators and students to really learn more about because I think that's the beautiful piece. That's where I talk about resiliency. That's where I think about um, that liminality, that existing in this unnamed space, if you want to call it, where it's a space that actually is beautiful because so much learning can happen. Those are the kind of ideas that really excite me at this point in my career and in my teaching and in my research. Yeah, and I would actually completely agree with that. I think that um, even in this podcast, as a listener, you've probably heard a few different like queer alphabets used. Um, and recognizing that that is okay. Again, it's really about making sure that people are understood and feel seen. Um, but inevitably, you're going to have students, uh, and maybe as a teacher, you don't feel like you fit into the boxes. I think this is the same way with the two-spirit community of like trying to find an identity that is um, parallel but not synonymous with being queer and trans. And so making sure that you're not getting too stuck on the terms. Language is important, absolutely. Language is very important to making sure people feel heard and included. But making sure that more importantly, people have the space to speak, to speak about themselves, to talk about their lived experience. Um, and for listeners, for like people who witness this to, to be there and to show up and to show up with like their whole selves listening. The other thing that I was thinking about earlier today, so I, I recently attended this amazing workshop by this local group called Hives for Humanity, which is uh, a Vancouver-based group that builds, um, it started out on the downtown east side, but now there's a few places downtown where they have these gardens that really um, are urban gardens um, and meant to help pollinators, like specifically honeybees, uh, and and also people in the downtown east side who um, often suffer like the most oppression. They, ha they have all sorts of identities, whether it's being um, indigenous or being a sex worker or being a drug user, um, that makes it hard for them to find things like employment, and it gives people opportunities. Anyway, Hives for Humanity was giving me this amazing analogy that I loved. Uh, and they were talking about how the honeybee, and this is actually something I just learned, the honeybee isn't native to Canada. It is actually a settler in a way. I mean, it's it's a colonizer, literally, they, they have colonies here. Um, but bees are so good for the environment. And in that same note, it is apparently possible for bees to overrun. It doesn't happen as often anymore, but it is possible for bees to do damage to the environment if they are left unchecked. And so what you ideally want to do is be a good honeybee. You want to be a pollinator. You want to be the kind of bee that is like a good environmental steward. And, and the analogy to taking this into like your own work is how to be a settler in all sorts of places in all contexts of your life in ways that are 
productive, helpful, that are respectful, and that actually help and uplift the community around you, whether that's the indigenous community, the queer community, people of color, um, your students, your fellow teachers, whatever that is. Thank you very much to our guests, Mira Daber and Alex DeForge for your thoughtful, impactful, and enlightening responses that address the pervasive racism impacting S2LGBTQ plus IA communities and your suggested educational technologies to propel learning, discourse, and change forward. You've helped us unpack anti-racism and racism in a clear and dynamic way. You provided us with a lot to think about and best practice strategies through the use of educational technology to inspire change both within and beyond our classrooms. This was absolutely amazing. We're so happy that we were able to have these important conversations. And I love that honeybee analogy. Amazing. <laughs> I'm going to start using it all the time. So thank you, Alex. Thank you, Mira. Now, as mentioned prior to the presentation, our intention for this speaker series, both in person and through podcasts, is to eradicate racism through small and large steps towards change. As such, we have created a call to action to move the teachings and learnings from today's podcasts and all future podcasts sessions forward. We challenge every listener to participate in one act of change. This could be having a conversation with a neighbor or a colleague sharing the honeybee analogy about something particularly within this session and within this podcast that resonated with you. It could be creating an interactive activity on anti-racism with the inclusion of 2SLGBTQIA plus voices to share with your students, your colleagues, peers, or staff. You might create a subset presentation or podcast to react to the discussion on pervasive racism and 2SLGBTQIA plus communities to draw awareness to the issue. We ask that you continue the conversation by sharing what you will do to implement the content from the podcast into your personal and or professional life using the hashtag MET and hashtag UBC capital A anti-racism and we'll share that in our notes section. When it comes to the availability of impact, culturally sensitive and relevant lesson plans that address anti-racism, there are very limited resources available. So we are urging as a grander gesture for any interested listener of this podcast to submit a lesson plan that aligns with the content from our interviews with Mira Daber and Alex DeForge with your curriculum in an attempt to create good quality anti-racism resources to put in the hands of educators. This lesson plan, Call to Action, can be found on the MET website under the URL provided in the comment area. Here you'll find a lesson plan template and some submission criteria. All lesson plans are required to be submitted no later than Friday, March 25th by 11.59 p.m. Pacific Standard Time 2022 for review. Some of the lesson plans will be chosen to be published on our MET website and may even receive a grant offered by the Edith Lando Virtual Learning Center to create additional digital resources which support your lesson plan and complement the ones that Mira Daber and Alex DeForge mentioned. All lesson plan entries include grades K-12, post-secondary, and graduate studies. They're encouraged and they're welcome. As quoted by Nelson Mandela, education is the powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. We are asking you to help with this change. No act is too small. 
Met continues our anti-racism speaker series next month on March 28th from 4 o'clock to 5 o'clock p.m. PST 2022, where we welcome the world-renowned Dr. Carl James to speak on the topic of anti-Black racism in a presentation named Race Matters, the Social Schooling and Educational Experiences of Black Youth, which strives to foster Black anti-racism through educational technology. Registration for this event is available on the MET website under the Events tab and in the podcast notes. One last thank you to our guests at this podcast, Mira Daber and Alex DeForge. It has been such a pleasure. And so much a pleasure for us. I like. I think that this conversation has been amazing. Mira, you have so many great things to teach. I'm so excited that we've met. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alex and Karen Simeon for having us on this podcast. What a great opportunity today. Really, really appreciate this experience. I'm really looking forward to what the listeners are going to put together. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you.